Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30-minute update on the latest in South African and global news, live and then as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Monday the 8th of January. Coming up on the program, should we have any faith in the new government power plan? Does South Africa's ICJ case against Israel have any merit? We'll try and unravel former President Jacob Zuma's new party support strategy. The Competition Commission looking at the high cost of school uniforms in South Africa. Well, back from the holidays, school's starting and you have to fork out for new school uniforms. But is there some skullduggery afoot? The Competition Commission has expressed concern over possible violations of the Competition Act. The body has received more than 200 school uniform-related complaints to probe over the past year. Joining us now is Karaba Mutaung, who is Principal Analyst Advocacy at the Competition Commission. Karaba, a very warm welcome to you. So, first up, what type of violations of the act to school and uniform suppliers potentially committing? Uh, thank you very much and good afternoon to your listeners. Um, so exclusive contracts is essentially would be an agreement between the school and the supplier. And to the extent that it forecloses um, other participants from entering the market, it would be a what we call a vertical restrictive practice. So a practice that uh, contravenes Section 5 of the Competition Act. How widespread do you think this is? It's, it's, it's extremely widespread, um, Jeremy, because you can just imagine the number of schools that we have in this country. I mean, we have tried through our advocacy to reach as many schools as possible, but we are still not even as the commission reaching, you know, even the, those schools, even in the deepest rural uh, communities. So it is quite a widespread uh, conduct. And um, I think it is important uh, that people do understand that in as much as, you know, we are trying our best, there's thousands and thousands of schools based on the, the data that we've just re- that we've received from the Department of Basic Education. It's not a new problem, but is there an increase, do you think? There's an increase in terms of awareness. I don't think uh, the problem, um, like you said, the problem is definitely not new. Uh, It's not that the conduct has increased. It's just that uh, maybe parents are becoming more aware uh, of the the problem. They're becoming aware of the fact that the Competition Commission is calling on them to come and lodge complaints. And perhaps that is why we are seeing uh, complaints still coming through. However, the conduct itself, I do not necessarily think that um, it is increasing. So you have these exclusive agreements or arrangements that you've referred to with the uniform suppliers. Obviously, Karabo, there is going to be an impact on price. Do we have any indication of how it's affecting the end user? In other words, the mums and dads? Jeremy, I mean, we see from the complaints, right? Uh, We have not done uh, an economic analysis, right, on the the impact um, 
of, of school uniform and these exclusively uh, agreements between schools and, and suppliers. But I mean, just judging from the complaints, you know, parents are, are really desperate um, and, and, and really crying out for, for help. And you can imagine, Jeremy, of course, uh, post-COVID, you know, families are cash-strapped. And, and I mean, school uniform being something that is important and something that is an essential and a need uh, for learners, we can just expect and, 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 and anticipate that it has a major financial blow on many families across the country. You've alluded to capacity issues as far as the commission is concerned. But having said that, though, what methods are you employing to probe the complaints that you've received so far? And what success, if any, have you achieved? Um, so, I mean, we, we take complaints on a case-by-case basis, right? So, we receive a complaint, uh, we engage with the complainant, what, get whatever information that we need. We then go and engage with the school directly. And, um, and, and in most cases, you know, sometimes you, you hear the school saying they were not aware of the guidelines, they were not aware that this is a contravention. In some instances, schools will tell you that, you know what, this is an agreement. The principal will tell you this is an agreement that they found in place and, you know, it's been there for many years. Uh, however, we have had some successes, Jeremy, because our aim really, uh, as we have indicated initially, was really is really not to prosecute schools, but really to change behavior and ensure that we improve the state of competition in this market. So some of our interventions with the schools really have been to assist them in terms of, one, removing the exclusivity um, clauses in these contracts, two, uh, ensuring that uh, they uh, they have a system in place which allows them to uh, at least appoint more than one uh, supplier, but also to ensure that the contracts that are in place currently it come have a, a, a termination date. You know that they don't just they are not evergreen contracts, um, and that they understand that going forward, new contracts that they conclude should not be longer than a period of five years, and after every five years. Um, the schools should, uh, through a competitive tender process, uh, issue out a tender and invite those uh, suppliers that are interested in supplying the school to come and uh, and, 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 and tender and, uh, and show what it is that they can provide to mm. the school. I suppose you can't exclude the possibility of bribes and backhanders. You you can't you can't, Jeremy. And you know, once you, you get into that 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 world, it becomes something else. You know. What options or recourse do parents have then if they have bought a uniform where they suspect that there is uh, price collusion? Jeremy, uh, parents can uh, still lodge complaints with the Competition Commission. Uh, the Commission will go and um, and investigate uh, that specific school and, uh, and try and understand what the situation is. So parents are still welcome to lodge complaints uh, to the Competition Commission. Are you looking at revising your guidelines in terms of school uniform uh, supply? Jeremy, I think the guidelines as they are do not necessarily warrant a revision. Uh, the reason the commission has not prosecuted schools in the past is because we were very clear that prosecution takes time. Remember, uh, a, while, a few years ago, we did prosecute school groups. We prosecuted your Kuros, Edbetech, uh um, inspired uh, schools and St. Andrews and, and, and those some, some of those bigger school groups and, and suppliers, right? So we have 
been able to successfully prosecute schools in the past. But following that prosecution, we decided that, you know what, uh, because we did conduct a survey back then, that schools were not aware of their conduct. And so that's why we then chose the advocacy route and hence the guidelines came in place. But I think where we are as the commission right now, Jeremy, is we are saying that we have done our best. We've done advocacy. We've, we've done, we've gone out and educated schools. We've gone out and done a lot of awareness around around these issues. However, right now, uh, we will be prosecuting schools, Jeremy, that still continue to contravene the Competition Act. Thank you very much for joining us. Karaba Mutong, Principal Analyst of Advocacy at the Competition Commission. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Well, we've all enjoyed a festive season load-shedding respite, but now it's lights off again, and we're all pinning our hopes on a new energy generation plan. But the response so far has been lukewarm, an unintended irony there. Hilton Trollope is a well-known energy analyst. He joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Hilton, is this a good plan? (laughs) Good, uh, sorry for laughing, good (laughs) afternoon, Jeremy. Um, No, Uh, categorically. Um, a number of uh, other uh, analysts have panned the plan, trying to continue the playing with words, and I've read their reports. I've also got up very early this morning and read the whole thing and thought, what does, why is it not a bad plan? So I'll just give me one minute to give you some background on why it's a bad plan. Off you go. So integrated resource planning was introduced in the white paper in the 90s, which I was involved in as the way for South Africa to go with energy planning in future, electricity planning, for very good reasons. Best international practice, all successful countries and states in the United States, etc., use it. Subsequently, in the Electricity Regulation Act, it has made a legal requirement to use integrated resource planning. This was then done. We had integrated resource plan in 2011, a number of others, the last one, 2019, substantial capacity built in the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy. And integrated resource planning is a fairly complex approach which requires a whole lot of capacity. We used to have such plans. The plan on the table, Jeremy, is a parody of such a plan. And it's difficult to explain why, but let me try. Firstly, these plans require solid, credible, empirical information about a whole lot of technologies, about potential demand, about what's going on. This plan does not have that information. It has very sketchy details on the technologies being considered, et cetera, et cetera. But worse than this, it doesn't implement the integrated resource planning approach. It's got a a heading that says RP review methodology, and then it refers to a model called Plexos modeling. But in my view, and I've worked on this now for 30 years, this does not follow integrating resource planning. It's a pretend at this. What it does is if you look right at the first few pages of the plans after the acronyms and the things, it has predetermined outcomes. And those predetermined outcomes follow along the, uh, what would I call it? And now, I'm going to jump to the end of the uh, interview I did this morning. I've spoken to the energy minister at length. I've heard his interviews on ENCA with uh, Judge Davis, etc. He has very clear views about coal power, nuclear power, gas power, and renewable powers. 
And quite simply, he is misinformed. So he thinks that coal and gas and nuclear provide this so-called dispatchable, reliable power. Renewables can't. So they're second thought. They're not the thing that's going to give us reliable power. And so what we get is the coal and gas forced into the plan. Um, and renewables given the sort of short shrift. Right. Whereas, on the other side, as well as the RP 2019 done by this department, there's a body of similar plans that have been generated by professionals, by the CSIR, or comments on these plans by the CSIR, by professional consultancies and academics, granted. People, I don't know why people are so against them these days. Um, and the overlap between the plan that the minister has put on the table or the department's put on the table, it's the minister, he, he gazettes it. And these other plans, they're in separate worlds. They occupy different universes. And that is why it's a bad plan. It's difficult to argue with somebody who presents a whole lot of dodgy, uh, bumbly, uh, what's the word, muddy facts that are incomplete, uh, doesn't use the same logic that's agreed in, in you know, the best practice, which is incredibly well documented. You know, every state in the U.S. has an integrated resource plan because it's required to by law there, similarly to other countries. Our plan doesn't look like that anymore. So, Hilton, a predetermined outcome is what you're suggesting. What then the potential consequences for the energy sector if this integrated resource plan is presented or is followed, should I say, as currently presented? Okay, so, uh, Jeremy, a bit more detail, but not specifically about this plan. They talk about two horizons. Between now and 2030 is one, and they have plans for that and then from 2031 to 2050. Let's go to the first bit. So firstly, six years from now till 2030 is a very short time, but there's load shedding, we're in a crisis. For that horizon, the only possibilities they consider in the plan, and I've got it up to half, it's 52 pages, I haven't got the right page here, but they only consider existing projects, stuff that's on the drawing board, recently been procured and there's a big problem there too with what they claim incorrect stuff projects in the pipeline stuff that's in so they don't consider using the department has this thing called the procurement office the power procurement office that's the way we get public stuff onto the grid that office has been failing and they don't consider using that office to do what's necessary which is to procure as much power economically as possible quickly to get us out of load shedding. So what they do for Horizon 2030, they just assume this time, this is gobsmacking, for the first time after the minister going public for years, saying we'll end load shedding in a year. All we have to do is fix the it's complete. Now they say, oh, there's going to be load shedding for the next four years, five years. At least there's nothing we can do about it. Just suck it up because they're only considering the projects on the, mm. uh, the drawing board, which probably includes car power ships and some, you know, stuff being pushed. Um, so we're now being told, suck it up, there's load shedding. We, uh, so that's the first consequence for the next four years. And I don't see why things should change much in four years' time right. because I see. And then a longer-term plan, they just shove in large amounts of nuclear, coal, etc., which are 
clearly non-starters uh, uh, if you look at a rational plan. But let's not worry too much about the long term for the moment. The short term is we have what I believe either misled or incompetent people that now expect us just to suck up that there's load shedding, whereas we know we could get overload shedding in the next few years. Hilton Trollope, I wish I could say it was a pleasure talking to you today, but you've given us a lot of food for thought, and uh, I do appreciate the blunt and honest assessment. Uh, Energy analyst Hilton Trollope with us here on MoneyWeb at Midday. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's switch now from energy to party politics. And is this a political sideshow? Or does the fact that former ANC President Jacob Zuma's declaration that he will not vote for the ruling party pose any type of threat? And what's behind the decision? Is there a strategy or is this simply a revenge play? Political writer and commentator Dr. Ibrahim Harvey has been writing on the subject. And firstly, Dr. Harvey, what do you believe is the primary motive behind Jacob Zuma's decision not to vote for the ANC? It's uh, not as easy a question to answer as to perhaps pose. It's a very complex combination of reasons. And in the News 24 column, I actually spelt out the background without which you won't understand to Zuma the logic of what he did. A lot of bitterness, a lot of things that have happened, arms deal, Kandla, you know, lots of things. But I think it's really a reflection of an accumulated bitterness, particularly since he was jailed. You know, never have before in the entire history of South Africa, let alone post-apartheid history, was a former president jailed, you know, and for the and he asked for it, really. You can't take it out on Romaposa. I think he, he blames him for him being jailed, whereas, he, in fact, his own conduct at that time, you know, led to what had happened. But um, I think it's, a, a, well, you know, this new party is gaining traction. Not surprisingly, you know, because... It doesn't matter in the entire history of the ANC and post-apartheid and all the, uh, the things of corruption and so on. The ANC membership and the, even the electorate, you know, which is predominantly uh, ANC supporters, members, that's why it's been returned to office all the time, don't seem to care very much. So I drew an analogy between, you know, he was fired by Mbeki in June uh, 2005 after the judge Hillary Squire's judgment found that there was a generally corrupt relationship between Zuma and Shabir Sheikh. They still voted for him against Mbeki at Polokwane barely 18 months later. So, uh, well, you know, South African politics is in a tumultuous ferment, Jeremy, at the moment. And you mustn't just look at Zuma going for this MK party. You've got to look at uh, Mabusa Mseman's resignation. The ANC as an organization and reflected largely in its leadership is an, in an unprecedented and paralyzing crisis. That is what's going mm. on. And you've got to look at the decision of Zuma and look how this party is gaining traction. I'm telling you, they're gaining such traction. I mean, although Malema says, what the hell has he done? He should have joined the EFF. <laughs> I think, uh, particularly in KZN, I think you're going to see some dramatic developments. I think they're going to have a significant turnout in their favor in KZN, and not only KZN. I mean, this thing has gone national, but I think the ANC is going to have a big mm. fight in KZN now with the MK party. Dr. Harvey, why do you think this MK party then is finding this uh, this traction that you refer to? 
why do you think they're finding the traction? Yes. You know, it's a combination, again, of reasons. We, Jeremy, the, our society is in the biggest crisis. Forget about post-apartheid. The Union of South Africa was formed in 1910. It has never been so bad. It's the worst infrastructural crisis in the entire history of South Africa, certainly from 1910. Never before so bad. If you think apartheid was bad, it was terrible regarding racism. But let me tell you, the best infrastructure in Africa and even further feel arguably into Southern Europe, which is the poorer countries. That was South Africa's infrastructure. Under ANC rule, indisputably, everything have, has gone to the dogs, Jeremy. I live in Johannesburg. The worst road conditions, water, sanitation, everything is collapsing. And largely under the ANC has to take responsibility. You know, the former spokesman of ESCOM just said three weeks ago, he says, look at only the ANC and no further if you want to trace mm -hmm. the root cause of the endemic load shedding and crisis in, in ESCOM. So, Dr. Who, Harvey, who do, you, know do, you think, do you think as a result of that assessment, the ANC has got any ammunition to fight back in what you term is a tumultuous election year? No, I, I mean, I've said it repeatedly all the time, consistently in my column and the interviews I've had with media. I'm now absolutely more convinced now with this new party informed and it's going to be split, you know, certainly in case there is the vote between, between the ANC and this party. I now absolutely am convinced, you know, contrary to some analysts who still think the ANC would marshal, manage, uh, you know, 50 percent uh, 50 plus one or something. I mean, uh, it was 57 point something in, in 2019. I don't think so. I think the best performance of the ANC will be between 40 to 45 or the middle 40, 40s there around. But certainly we'll lose the election and we'll be having the first time a nationally constituted coalition government because we've never had that, Jeremy, because the ANC has never lost a national election. But Certainly, I think they're going to lose it next year. Just a final question then. Uh, you would have seen the response this weekend from the Secretary General Fikili Mbulula saying that the ANC protected Jacob Zuma from being held accountable for Nkandla, for instance, and he has made something of an apology in that respect. What's your assessment of that? What do you read into those remarks? Is that a fight back? No, it's absolutely true. That what they're doing now with Ramaphosa is what they did. In fact, Ramaphosa himself rallied behind it. This is, 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 is a mess, uh, Jeremy, honestly, the politics. Ramaphosa was part of the rallying forces to defend Zuma when evidence was clearly there that he was culpable and he messed up, you know, in Kandla. And now rallying the same forces to defend him against uh, Palapala scandal, you know. This is how the mm. ANC works, Jeremy, you know. It's really dog-eat-dog, dog, and it's just a pathetic reflection of the policies and politics of the ruling party. So I know what he said, but uh, it's true that uh, if it wasn't for the ANC, Parliament would have found you would have been impeached by Parliament, uh, Jeremy, um, and you've seen how they rallied behind, defended yeah. this thing, and refused to even allow a discussion of the Palapala uh, independent pa parliamentary panel report uh, late last year. Yeah, no which doubt. saved uh, Ramaphosa from being impeached, probably. No doubt that we're in for a very messy political 2024. Dr. Ibrahim Harvey, thank you very much indeed for the assessment. I appreciate it. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. 
South Africa has become the first country to file a suit against Israel at the International Court of Justice, increasing international pressure on Tel Aviv to stop the bombardment of the Gaza Strip. The 84-page suit deals evidence of brutality being perpetrated in Gaza and asks the court, it's the United Nations body, for resolving interstate disputes to urgently declare that Israel has breached its responsibility under international law. Kathy Powell is an associate professor in public law at the University of Cape Town and joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Professor, first up, how do you assess South Africa's case against Israel, particularly in terms of legal merit and evidentiary support? We have a strong case that has been very well researched and referenced and set out. It's an 84-page application. I checked this morning uh, after hearing that Israel had called uh, the allegations of genocide unsubstantiated. Um, There are 29 pages of factual allegations backed up by sources. And these allegations cover conduct that would be genocidal. So conduct that involves either killing Palestinians, seriously wounding them, or making living conditions impossible for them. So that's 29 pages. Then there are 18 pages setting out statements by members of the Israeli government, members of the Knesset, and in one case an army reservist, indicating genocidal intent, because genocidal intent is one of the things you have to prove to prove genocide. So there are 18 pages of that, and there are statements of saying things like, oh, they should be wiped off the map. And the army reserve said, if a Jew has an Arab neighbor, he should shoot him now. So there's some very serious mm. statements indicating a desire to eradicate the entire group of, of Gaza. That would fit genocidal intent if you can show that Israel intends to destroy in whole or in part a national, religious, ethnic or racial group. So Gaza in this case would be a part of the Palestinian people. And then uh, there are also three pages showing how international agencies, NGOs, various units have also called Israel out for genocide. So there definitely is a case for Israel to answer. Professor Powell, can you elaborate for us on the role then of the International Court of Justice in this matter and explain the court's jurisdiction over such cases? In other words, how is this going to work? Right. The International Court of Justice has jurisdiction only over states, not over individuals. So this is not a criminal case against an individual. It's a case looking at whether Israel bears responsibility for these acts. The International Court of Justice has jurisdiction only if the states in the case before it had given their consent to jurisdiction. Now, there are two ways states can give their consent. One is a declaration specifically to the court saying, accept your jurisdiction, which neither South Africa nor Israel has done. But the other way that a state can indicate consent is by becoming a party to a, a treaty which refers disputes under that treaty to the ICJ. And that is what the Genocide Convention has done. Now, both South Africa and Israel are parties to the Genocide Convention, and neither of them has made a reservation to the article in the Convention that refers to speech under that Convention to the ICJ. So that is the basis on which the ICJ has jurisdiction. Professor Paul, you talk about South Africa having a strong case. How then would Israel mount a defence? 
Well, because every statement of fact or law in the application has a source, Israel would have to either attack the source, say that the source is fake, or if they accept that the source is real and at least some of the evidence that has emerged is in fact true, it would have to argue that that conduct or those statements do not fit under the definition of genocide. In the event, Professor, that the ICJ rules in favour of South Africa, is there immediate impact on Israel's international standing and policies? Would it be forced to do anything, in other words? Legally, the judgment would be binding. So Israel would be under an obligation to carry out the order that the ICJ hands down. In practical terms, it may well ignore the order. But the effect then would be on Israel's moral standing. And remember, we've had a lot of very wild accusations of flowing backwards and forwards, which haven't all been fact-checked. We haven't actually had this case considered by a court of law. And when a court of law has done a preliminary assessment of the evidence and the, and the law, there is, a, there is some sort of basis to say, okay, we know what's going on. Let me add at this point, what will be argued this week is not the, the full case. It's not whether Israel is in fact responsible for genocide or for failing to prevent it. It's the provisional measures case. So South Africa has brought a case against Israel, and uh, the case alleges that Israel is responsible for violations of the Genocide Convention. But that's not the case that's being heard straight away. What's being heard straight away is a request by South Africa for, I suppose we'd call it an interdict in domestic law. So South Africa is asking the ICJ to hand down an order stopping the situation from getting any worse while the ICJ looks at the merits of the full application. And if that's handed down, what it would mean, if the court gives what South Africa has asked for, it would mean that uh, the court would order a ceasefire and order Israel to restore electricity and water to Gaza and also to let aid in. And typically, how long would the court take to make a decision like that? Provisional measures are usually done quite quickly. I can't give you uh, an exact estimate, but uh, we've seen, for example, when Ukraine brought an application against Russia, that the order was handed down within a few days. Professor Kathy Powell, thank you very much indeed. And that's our first show for 2024. Other stories on our radar before we go. The Citizen Online reporting today that the airport's company South Africa is aware of and regrets an incident at OR Tambo International where a passenger's baggage was tampered with and possession stolen. And the U.S. Secretary of State beginning a visit to the Middle East today as fears grow that Israel could expand its Gaza conflict to Lebanon. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.